Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President for, for Programs and Strategy here at the Atlantic Council. I'm delighted to welcome you to this conference on geopolitics, security, uh, and energy in the Arctic. Uh, I'd like to take a moment at the outset to thank our partners in particular, the Arctic Energy Center. We're so grateful for the partnership that we've had uh, in our programming on the challenges in the high north. So here at the Atlantic Council, our team, our experts, recognize that the Arctic is a rapidly changing region and an emerging friction zone, home to a significant portion of the world's oil, natural gas, and mineral resources, the regions of critical importance for both Arctic and non-Arctic states. Melting ice has led to the emergence of new, potentially lucrative shipping routes and opportunities for resource exploration and exploitation. But conflicting claims and territorial disputes have escalated tensions uh, in the region as well. Russia's moved rapidly to defend its strategic interests by significantly expanding its military infrastructure, repositioning troops, and investing in Arctic-optimized technology. China and other nations have begun to increase their presence in the region as well. So with new demands for governance structures, environmental protection, security mechanisms, and infrastructure development, the United States, Europe, NATO, and Arctic and non-Arctic states alike must work together to develop a coherent strategy for the region. The United States, of course, has been an Arctic nation since the purchase of Alaska in 1867. In 2015, the United States assumed the chairmanship of the Arctic Council, the premier forum for Arctic diplomacy, and has developed an ambitious, ambitious program for its term, which will continue into 2017. Much of this recent work on the Arctic has been guided by the White House Arctic Executive Steering Committee, spearheaded by Ambassador Mark Brzezinski and the Zamy Pope, uh, and Admiral Robert Papp, former commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard and first ever U.S. Special Representative for the Arctic at the State Department. And we're honored to be able to welcome all three of them here today. Um, Admiral, thank you for joining us as well. And Amy, we look forward uh, to hearing more about uh, U.S. priorities shortly. So today's discussions are geared towards understanding the future of energy in the Arctic and the evolving security and geopolitical dynamics in the region and the policy options to best grapple with these emerging challenges and opportunities. We've got a stellar lineup of speakers to share their insights on these topics. And I want to thank everyone who's here for giving us their time for this conversation. We want to encourage all of you in the room to join in the conversation, but also all of those who are watching uh, online and through the live stream uh, on both the Atlantic Council and the Arctic Energy websites. Please join this conversation using the hashtag FutureArctic. We consider today the beginning of this conversation and plan to carry forward what we discuss today as the Council leads a fact-finding delegation uh, to the region headed up north uh, this January. So with that, I'd like to hand over the floor to Ms. Amy Pope. In addition to serving as Vice Chair of the White House Arctic uh, Executive Steering Committee, Ms. Pope is also Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy Homeland Security Advisor. In this capacity, she manages a wide range of issues from countering terrorism and violent extremism to promoting travel and, and regular migration to combating Zika, Ebola, and other public health threats. Prior to this current position, Ms. Pope led the Transborder Security Directorate and worked in several positions at the Department of Justice, on the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Homeland Security, and as a counsel to the Office of Senate Majority Leader uh, Harry Reid. So thank you very much for joining us today. Without further ado, let me invite you to the stage. We look forward to your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Damon, and to the Atlantic Council for hosting this very important event and inviting me to speak today. 
Uh, as Damon said, I serve as the President's Deputy Homeland Security Advisor on the National Security Council staff. I also serve as the Vice Chair on the Arctic Executive Steering Committee. Um, and I can tell you I've really watched the evolution of our Arctic policy um, during the four years that I've been serving on the National Security Council staff. When I first joined the staff in 2012, we didn't have a strategy. We didn't have an AESC, the acronym, because it's Washington, so we, we put everything into an acronym. We didn't have Admiral Papp serving um, in his important role. We didn't have Ambassador Brzezinski. Um, in, in short, the, the U.S. position on the Arctic um, was not as well prepared as it needed to be. And it was clear um, that with a rapidly changing climate, that we needed to very quickly put into place a leadership structure to guide the U.S. efforts in the region. So our national strategy and its supporting plans advance three lines of effort to incorporate the broad range of U.S. activities in the, in the region. We are advancing U.S. interests, we're pursuing responsible Arctic region stewardship, and we're strengthening our international cooperation. In my remarks today, I want to focus first on some of our recent accomplishments, what we've really been doing within the past year or so, our priorities for the region as a whole, and some thoughts on transition as we approach November. So it's really, this is not understating it in the least, um, it, the, the impact of the Arctic on the United States is tremendous, and we have absolutely recognized that fact, and it's been a game-changing year for the Arctic as far as U.S. policy is concerned. This administration, through President Obama's leadership, has brought an unprecedented attention to and investment in the region. First and foremost, the President has recognized that the dynamics in the region are changing in significant and consequential ways. The reduction in sea ice has been dramatic, abrupt, unrelenting, and as the climate warms, and as the region becomes progressively open to trade and travel, it provides a range of new opportunities and new challenges. And the first order of business, the, the first priority for the president, is to be clear-eyed about the consequences of climate change. The president's trip to the region last year as the first sitting American president to set foot in the Arctic brought the eyes of the world to the problem. As he noted, the looming crisis in, Arctics, in the Arctic and Alaska is a tangible preview of the looming crisis of the global condition. On his national security team, we see that looming crisis as a significant incentive to make sure that we are as prepared as possible to engage in a coordinated way, both internally in terms of our self-organization and bureaucracy, as well as globally. We're led by core principles, that the Arctic region is peaceful, it's stable, it's free of conflict, and we intend to keep it that way. Our goal with our allies and our partners is to sustain a spirit of trust, cooperation, and collaboration. And we've used our leadership of the Arctic Council to advance this long tradition of international cooperation. It's not been easy. As those of you who've been watching the world over the past couple of years, you know that there have been some real stresses in our relationships with key members of the Council and others who are, have their eye on the region. But I really commend my colleague, Bob Papp, who's sitting here in the front row, for his leadership of, during this incredibly tumultuous time to maintain the peaceful and collaborative relationship we've had in the Arctic. And it's not by accident that the President began his visit to the region at the Conference for Global Leadership in the Arctic, or Glacier, in Anchorage, building a coalition of 22 nations 
who affirmed their resolve to take urgent actions to slow the pace of warming in the Arctic and globally. And as part of our comprehensive plan to build alliances to achieve his vision, this past March, when President Obama hosted Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the Arctic featured prominently. The US-Canada joint statement elevated Arctic leadership to a new level, committing that commercial activities will occur only when the highest safety and environmental standards are met, including consistency with national and global climate goals, and basing development decisions and operations on scientific evidence. And just a couple of weeks ago, the White House hosted the first ever Arctic science ministerial. This landmark event brought together science ministers from 25 nations to improve collaborative science efforts in the Arctic, from China to Russia to India to Norway. All 25 nations committed to the importance of supporting science cooperation in the Arctic region. And because respected civilian and military leaders have recognized for years that climate change is a national security issue, last month President Obama issued a presidential memorandum requiring the federal government fully consider the impacts of climate change and the development and implementation of all of our national security plans and, and uh, priorities. And we've seen that reflected most clearly in the Arctic. That's why this year in the President's budget request, we elevated Arctic as a policy focus. We're seeking funding for coastal climate resilience, for the Denali Commission, and for an issue that's a personal favorite of mine, icebreakers, allowing for the year-round ability to navigate the region. We hope that when Congress gets back to work this fall, it will provide this critical funding for icebreakers. This is the kind of support we need to build out our infrastructure that will enhance both our safety, but also our security in the region. So let me turn to our priorities for the Arctic region. Number one, we are gonna continue to lead in the Arctic. The Arctic, a global treasure, demands great leadership. The United States is committed to constructive cooperation, maintaining a region that is sta stable and peaceful, where nations act responsibly in the spirit of trust and cooperation, and where economic and energy resources are developed in a sustainable manner that respects the fragile environment and the interests and the cultures of all the people of the Arctic. We will advance cooperation among Arctic states and nations with interest in the Arctic. As we witness at the Glacier Conference and the White House Science Ministerial, interest in the Arctic is not limited to eight Arctic states. The unique characteristics of this vast region draws global attention. International cooperation demands inclusive, innovative solutions and partnerships. We will exceed the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Anybody in Senate out there? <laughs> Becoming a party to the Law of the Sea Convention would help the United States maximize international recognition and legal certainty regarding the outer limits of the U.S. continental shelf, including off the coast of Alaska, where our extended continental shelf is likely to extend out to more than 600 nautical miles. U.S. ascension is a matter of geostrategic importance in the Arctic, where all other Russian, or Arctic nations, including Russia, are parties. We will complete the work of the U.S. Extended Continental Shelf Task Force to establish the outer limits of the U.S. Continental Shelf. For over a decade, U.S. agencies have been engaged in data collection and analysis 
to determine the outer limits of the continental shelf. This is highly technical work that will, con that will continue until the United States has completed the necessary work to establish the outer limits of our continental shelf consistent with international law. We will continue the strong consensus-based cooperation of the Arctic Council. The Arctic Council celebrated its 20th anniversary this year. The United States is fully committed to this peaceful-minded and consensus-based governance model. It's proved instrumental and consistent in addressing new challenges and opportunities in the region. And I commend the terrific work the Arctic Council continues to advance in areas of mutual cooperation, including search and rescue, oil spill response planning, science cooperation. We will develop and maintain year-round access to the polar regions. The growth of human activity in the Arctic region requires stewardship to maintain the open seas necessary for global commerce, scientific research, to allow for search and rescue capabilities, and ultimately to provide for regional peace and stability. National policy requires the United States to assert a more active and effective national presence to protect its Arctic interests and project sea power into the region. We must be prepared to operate independently in the region to provide for maritime security, maritime domain awareness, and freedom of the seas. That's why the President has proposed to accelerate the acquisition of a replacement heavy icebreaker from 2020 to 2022 and has called for planning for additional icebreakers. We will maintain the Arctic Executive Steering Committee as the primary body for coordination of our federal efforts in the region. In the federal government, we do a lot of work by committees, and sometimes it's not that effective. But having served with the AESC since its, its creation, I can tell you this committee really does work, both in function and in productivity. It's grown into a nationally recognized and highly regarded forum for coordination of federal efforts in the Arctic. And it works because of the commitment and the cooperation of the federal agencies and departments who have Arctic mandates, missions, and responsibilities. It also works because we're committed to and responsive to the needs of its constituents. And I would be remiss if I didn't add the committee has benefited tremendously from the optimism and the leadership of Ambassador Mark Brzezinski, who's serving as its executive director. I am counting on this committee to carry us through the upcoming transition as the keeper of federal Arctic priorities and momentum. I'm looking at you, Mark. <laughs> and we will continue consultation with Alaska Natives and Indigenous communities. This is a core principle of our national strategy for the Arctic region. The Arctic Executive Steering Committee is charged to maximize transparency and promote collaboration with the state of Alaska Alaska Native Tribal Governments, Alaska Native Governments, and Indigenous Communities. This consultation is absolutely paramount to a successful approach in the region. I commend Dr. John Holdren, who serves as the chair of the Arctic Executive Steering Committee, for hosting the recent pre-ministerial briefing of the Arctic Science Ministerial. He brought together over 30 Alaska Native leaders and representatives from five Indigenous organizations from across the Arctic to share their concerns and their priorities regarding Arctic science. We commit to world-class safety and environmental standards in development decisions. We continue to take steps to advance the bilateral and multilateral commitments of Canada and the Nordic states to conduct commercial activities in the Arctic, 
including oil and gas exploration and development, only when the highest safety and environmental standards are met, including national and global climate and environmental goals. And on the specific question of energy security, our strategy recognizes that the region holds sizable proved and potential oil and natural gas resources that will likely continue to provide valuable supplies to meet U.S. energy needs into the future. But responsibly developing Arctic oil and gas resources aligns with the United States' all-of-the-above approach to developing domestic energy resources, whether it's renewables, expanding oil and gas production, increasing efficiency and conservation efforts to reduce our reliance on imported oil and strengthening our nation's energy security. And as part of this broader energy security strategy, we're committed to working with stakeholders, industry, other Arctic states to explore the energy resource base, to develop and implement best practices, and to share experiences to make sure that we are producing oil and natural gas in environmentally responsible ways. The United States is an Arctic state, and our continued leadership in this region is, the global, is in the global and national interest. We will carry forth these values as we move forward on this priority. Now, just a few moments on transition. Just as the Arctic is in a period of great transition, so is our nation. As we move through the coming months, many who have led our federal Arctic efforts will move on, and the United States will hand off our chairmanship of the Arctic Council to Finland. It's imperative that those who follow in our footsteps continue the work that we have begun over the past several years to safeguard peace and stability, to ensure the decisions we are made are informed by science and traditional knowledge, to pursue innovative arrangements that break through the complexities of time and speed and distance challenges that are really unique in this region, to continue to, continue to consult with Alaska Natives and indigenous peoples in the development of Arctic policies because they are our best sources of local knowledge in Arctic matters. Ultimately, time will be the judge of our actions in the Arctic. But our goal and my goal as part of the President's national security team is to create the connectivity and the conditions so that we can su succeed in keeping this region an area of collaboration and of peace. Thank you. If I could ask my panel to uh, to come on up, and we're going to go straight into the uh, the first panel. Amy, thank you. That was a, a wonderful summation of, of everything that that you've done and, and are doing here in the administration, and, and a very interesting uh, start to our discussion. You know, one of the things you said. Uh, the U.S. is an Arctic state, and I think Americans often forget that. We forget that, that you know, we have, uh, we're one of five Arctic littoral states. Certainly nobody in this room forgets that. But when I go out and talk to people around the country uh, about these issues, it's almost a, an afterthought, unlike all the other Arctic states where it's such a central part of their identity. Uh, so that's why it's so important that we have these discussions here in Washington and talk about these issues. The, the title of our panel, uh, first to briefly in introduce myself, I'm Andrew Holland, the Director of Studies at the American Security Project. We're a nonpartisan national security think tank. Uh, it's quite a bit smaller than the Atlantic Council here, but uh, good to be here at the Atlantic Council, and, and thanks to the Council for, uh, for inviting me and putting on a great, uh, uh, great conference here today. Uh, our panel is called the 
untapped potential, the future of energy in the Arctic. Uh, and we talk about untapped potential, uh, and, and I think it's that, that includes energy, obviously, also mineral resources, transport, fisheries, but I think also there's an untapped potential here of strategic cooperation versus strategic uh, conflict. Um, and these opportunities and challenges are kind of all presented by, frankly, by climate change, by the melting of the ice happening much faster than, than everybody predicted. Uh, you know, only 10 years ago, we were still expecting the Arctic to be quite closed uh, for human use and habitation for, for many decades more. Um, but now we're presented with this challenge and opportunity, how to tap that untapped potential uh, while also maintaining environmental protection, while also maintaining peace, leadership, and security, while building prosperity for America as a whole, Alaskans, and Arctic Native peoples. And uh, this balance isn't easy, uh, but we, we do have to ensure that this opening, this unpredicted opening of, of the Arctic become, brings it to an, an area of peace and, and prosperity. And with that, that's enough talking from me. Uh, I'm going to introduce our, our esteemed panelists who have uh, together uh, a, a wealth of experience both in the Arctic and uh, knowledge of, of uh, issues around the Arctic. Uh, and uh, the order I've got here, I'll, I'll go first, uh, Admiral Titley. Rear Admiral David Titley is currently the director for Center for Sol Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk at Pennsylvania State University. Uh, I think he, he may be the only professor you'll find in the country who's both a professor in meteorology and a professor in international affairs. Uh, quite, a, quite a mix. Uh, he served as a naval officer for 32 years and ro rose to the rank of Rear Admiral. Uh, I first met him uh, when he became uh, the leader of U.S. Navy's Task Force Climate Change uh, about seven years ago. Um, second, uh, Admiral Barrett. Uh, Admiral Tom Barrett became the, the president of Alaska Pi Pipeline Services Company on January 1st, uh, 2011. Uh, prior to that, he served 35 years in the U.S. Coast Guard, rising to the, to the position of vice commandant, the number two position in the Coast Guard. Uh, third, Rear Admiral Donald Lauren uh, is currently the President and CEO of Old Dominion Strategies. Uh, prior to that, he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Security Integration, where he was responsible for strategic planning, policy development, defense support for civil authority integration, and capacity building. Uh, he retired from the U.S. Navy as a Rear Admiral uh, with 31 in a 31-year naval career. Uh, and then finally, next to me is, is Mead Tread, Treadwell. He's the president of uh, PT Capital, an Alaska-based investment bank and private equi equity fund. Uh, he's also the chair of the Arctic Circle Task Force on Shipping and Ports. Uh, he served as lieutenant governor of Alaska from 2010 to, to 2014, uh, chaired the U.S. Arctic Research Commission from 2006 to 2010 under Presidents uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Uh, and uh, it's wonderful to have all of you here, uh, and uh, 
I think will go in that, that order of introduction. Uh, that's the way I have it on my, my panel. So Admiral Titley, over to you. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it, we have, we have about an hour here of discussion. Uh, the idea is a brief introduction, then I'll, I'll ask some questions and then I'll open it out to the audience for questions. Great. So, so we have, what, about five minutes? Yeah. What did you want? Yeah, about five, say five to ten. Five, oh, so ten. I, I hear ten. So, so okay. that's good. Oh, well, <laughs> but I'll, I'll cut you off at ten. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, no, I'm not playing with uh, emails, but there's no clock if you look around here, so that'll, that'll help me just make sure I stay somewhat on track. So thank you very much, Andrew. And, and this is really, thank you to the Atlantic Council for, for inviting me. This is really tremendous because sometimes when I go and speak around the country, I'm honestly not sure that this many people in America could have found the Arctic. So I know that, I know, we know the bottom <laughs> number now. So that's a, that's a good sign. Uh, I think I had a handout in the package. There was a package and, and it's sort of one of my typical graphics because there's no words on it or almost no words. Uh, but I do have some, uh, some pictures on there. And if you look at it, you'll see that uh, I have a picture up at the top of what the ice in the Arctic looked like in March of 1991, and then 25 years, years later, in March of 2016. Basically, same kind of imagery. It, it happens to be microwaves. You can look through dark, and you can look through clouds. And you also see how much thickness there is. So you see two things in there. The amount of coverage is down somewhat, noticeably, but it's down somewhat. This is, remember, the, the maximum, the, the most amount of ice you get in the Arctic. But if you look at those two things, what is, to me, incredible is how the really old, hard, thick ice has all but disappeared. It's only about 15% left. And it used to be 45, 50, even, even 60% on, on some years there. So, the Arctic is a place where climate change is not some kind of distant, far-off theory that maybe happens someday, possibly. It's, it's happened. And I would argue the wake-up call for at least, uh, I'm not going to speak for those who, who actually live, up, live in the Arctic, but I would say for the rest of us, the wake-up call was 2007, when we saw the ice collapse. It tried to come back, kind of like my stock market portfolio tried to come back. And then it collapsed again in 12. And then yes, this year, 2016, with almost no fanfare, we were almost down as low as 2012, except the, uh, the weather wasn't anything particularly abnormal. There wasn't any huge storm, the reasons that we know why 2012 was so low. It's becoming, you know, I hate to use the cliche, but it is becoming what we will now expect. The other interesting thing about the ice was it started from a record low in March. We had never seen that little ice at the end of a winter season. And even today, as a little factoid, uh, there is less ice, sea ice, in the Arctic today on October 25th than we've ever recorded for this date. So that goes back to basically the 70s when we started getting the, the satellite, satellite information there. So what does that mean? Uh, it means a few things. One thing I can say is that we probably understand where the future climate is going in, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years in the Arctic better than we understand the details of the security situation. I mean, if anybody here can tell me what our relationship is going to be with Russia and China 30 years from now, uh, I, I want you on my team. But <laughs> I can give a pretty good uh, 
estimate projection of where, where the ice is going to be. So, that, so although there are certainly changes, and there are big changes year to year, but we know the trend. And we know that that trend is going to be opening up the Arctic, increased human activity. Now, how that evolves, there are certainly many, many scenarios down which that can go. But I kind of look at everything you know, from a security perspective. And, and what I see is increased human activity. Uh, and how we manage that, I mean, Amy, Amy talked quite nicely about how we, how we should try to manage that. Uh, the US Navy's latest Arctic uh, roadmap, uh, signed out in 2014 by the Chief of Naval Operations, was estimating that the over-the-pole route could open up briefly in about a decade, mid-2020s. Uh, most of the shippers I talk to say you probably need six to eight weeks of reliable uh, open water to really make it a commercial venture, so that's probably not going to be in a decade from now, but, but these things are, uh, are coming. You know, paradoxically, though, as you open up the Arctic, uh, in some ways it becomes harder to operate up there, as, as certainly the Coast Guard knows, the Navy knows on the surface. Uh, more open water, bigger waves, you still have lots of storms, it's still really cold, uh, and you still get things you have to deal with up in the Arctic that you don't down here, like spray. So. 2016, most technological Navy in the world, United States Navy, you know how we bust off ice off of ships? A bosun bait, but I can't call them bosun baits anymore because the Secretary of the Navy abolished that. So, <laughs> so a, a non-rated or a junior petty officer with a mallet, I mean, and that's, and that's what we do. So we have a long ways to go. I was happy to hear Amy talk about icebreakers and the administration, but you know, if we're running a marathon up there, I would say right now we're maybe past the 200-yard mark. We have a long, long ways to, uh, to go. We need to think how these changes impact, uh, impact others. Uh, we, look at, we look at the coast of Russia, 50%, of course, of the Arctic coastline. And as a uh, friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Uh, Katerzyna Zisk says, when you, when you open up the, uh, the fifth ocean at Europe's northern frontier, that natural impenetrable barrier of ice along all of Russia's northern coast is basically going, going, gone. So as we look at what the Russians are doing from a security perspective, we need to be, I think, very clear-eyed, very realistic. But we also need to understand that their natural defense that they have just grown up with for hundreds and hundreds of years is literally melting away before their very eyes. So it just adds a little bit of nuance to how we see or should at least think about some of the, uh, some of the changes in their security posture uh, that we see. So I'll just leave, I'll, I'll just uh, wrap up here, but I'll give you one thing because this might sound a little too happy. And I used to work for a gentleman named Andy Marshall in the Office of Net Assessment, and he would be disappointed if I ended on a happy note. Uh, <laughs> if anybody who's worked with him, you would, you would understand that. Oh, he's still very much alive. Uh, <laughs> on the horizon, Amy Pope talked about how we need to uh, minimize climate change in the Arctic. So we could either do it the way we're supposed to do it, which is reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, there are certainly some tactical things we can do, such as uh, black carbon and stuff like that, and we should do those. But those kinds of talks bring on uh, more and more people are going to start talking about climate intervention. You may know it as geoengineering. Uh, 
And that, to me, is, is pretty scary. It's a wild card. There are big, big risks, but there are also people trying to think seriously about it. In fact, 30-plus uh, scientists sent a letter to the science ministerial talking about that might be one of the things to, uh, to see. So my, my forecast, since I'm a recovering weather forecaster, is we will start seeing more talks about some types of climate intervention as the ice more and more rapidly melts away. Not only the sea ice, but the land ice, which we're all going to feel, because that's going to raise sea level by meters. OK, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Admiral Titley, thank you. Uh, Admiral Barrett, over to you. Thank you. Uh, Amy, thanks. You laid a nice framework here. I'll try and cover a couple of things quickly, and then maybe follow on one of the questions. So kind of the energy picture, so we operate TAPS. It's an 800-mile, 48-inch pipeline across the Arctic. It's been in business for 40 years. Uh, we moved over 17 billion barrels of oil successfully and reliably. It's been transformative for Alaska's economy and instrumental to U.S. national energy security. So one-third of all Alaska jobs are tied to oil. Uh, Alaska Native corporations coming out of the Settlement Act, which was mentioned, are major players in the state economically. There's fundamentally, it's good, sound infrastructure. There's no easy replacement for it. We're challenged because we have less oil in it. I know that's counterintuitive. We used to move as much as 2.1 million barrels a day. We're now moving 500,000 barrels. It's kind of like the, uh, the red light on your, on your car, add oil to your engine, is on. That's where we are. Uh, it's it's uh, water and wax uh, moving less oil through that line in an Arctic environment, still very much very cold. We're above ground for 400 miles is, is a significant challenge. So we're working against that. But long term, the best solution for us and the infrastructure is more oil. Um, the oil is there, and the gas is there. So onshore, nearshore, offshore Alaska, fundamentally 13%, I think I heard the stats, of the US world's undiscovered oil resources are there. One third of US reserves are in the Arctic, one third, right? And the United States will need that resource for many, many years to come. Uh, even with renewables, 80% of the world's energy will still come uh, related to oil and gas, traditional sources, if you will, for the next 30 to 40 years. Probably 60% of the U.S. reserves are up there. So um, significant impact. So how does that translate, though, into uh, national security? And, and by the way, we have the expertise. The technology is there. It's increasingly better. The ability to explore, develop, produce, and move safely is there. So um, where does that leave us on the national security side? Well the energy and economic security for one. But it's not generally known. For example, we, we field two in-state refineries. Okay, Petrostar and Valdez, the military is expanding uh, in Alaska. Uh, certainly, it calls Alaska strategically important and world-class training environment, moving assets up there, say, to Eielson Air Force Base, uh, eventually a couple of squadrons of F-3. Where do you think the fuel to provide the, the, uh, the power for those aircraft comes from? It comes mainly out of the Petrostar refinery, also the cold weather fuel for helicopters and the fuel for the Coast Guard's J the JP-4 we need to run the C-130s. A lot of in-state, still some from out-state. And the little oil we move is still significant on the West Coast. So the transformation thing is kind of what I want to talk on. 75% of Alaskans support offshore development. Those are the people who live closest to the region, closest to the resource, and Alaskan native voices. I do not want to be presumptive and speak for Alaska Natives. But I think, I'm hoping, that when we talk about listening to the indigenous people in the Arctic, that they are listening hard to what they're saying. So this is a uh, Alaska Native leaf at Crawford Pocketok. 
chairman of Arctic Slope uh, Regional Corporation. This is what he has to say. And by the way, he's also a whaling captain, okay? He's a whaling captain. And Alaska natives had to fight the no more whaling motion or movement, if you will, uh, save the whales to be able to continue a way of life with whaling that they've uh, survived on for thousands and thousands of years. The U.S. government policy was moving against that. But anyway, Crawford says, we call on the federal government to serve as our partners to ensure we continue to have responsible development on the North Slope. We need the tax base. We need the new oil in taps. Stop fighting Alaska natives at every turn and work with us on prospects. Don't turn your backs on the people of the North Slope. Instead, join us to develop a sustainable solution. Um, Alaska natives, including your major, and five native corporations are invested in energy development. Um, they, uh, I think the term would say, they can't be purists about some of the environmental issues. By the way, they had a fight, fight environmentalists to get taps built, fight hard. It was a one vote passage in the US Congress and it has been transformational for their lives, for their lives and their education and their communities in the Arctic. So um, again, um, I think we need to hear those voices as well as the security interests. Last quick point on security interests. Another friend, uh, Willie uh, Hensley, is out of Kotzebue, right? And I'm sure if you, geography is everything up there, distances are everything. So Willie would tell you he was born 29 miles north of the Arctic Circle in Kotzebue, 50 miles east of the International Dateline, 90 miles east of Russia. If you think about it, where's the word Arctic come from? It's, I think, a Greek etymology. It means near the bear. Okay, so um, maybe Ursa Minor, Polaris, maybe Ursa Major, but if you look at the Arctic geography, it's also near the other bear that we deal with. And I would tell you uh, that needs some thought. My own experience as a, a D-17 commander confronting Russia and Russian operations in the area of fisheries and even in benign areas like search and rescue is if there's an opportunity there and they can push and you don't have the presence, they will exploit it. And even in areas like search and rescue, we had a great case uh, where we were instrumental in serving six Russian indigenous natives on a SAR case. They got caught in a storm transiting up there. We knew the boats were in Russian waters. We have an agreement that says we can search together. They would not let us help for three or four days, right, until Moscow approved it. Eventually, we got the permission. We went in. We found them. It was a save. I got a note a couple of days later in the op center in Juneau. It was a broken English voice. And he said, Coast Guard, you are gorgeous. He said, these people were nothing. No one else would do what you did. You're gorgeous. I think this country is like that. We will go to lengths to take care of people like nowhere else in the world. We need to maintain and sustain that, and we especially need to do it in the Arctic. But I'm happy to explore those areas. It's, uh, it, it's a fabulous opportunity, and we need to recognize the implications if we don't take advantage of it. Thanks. Admiral Barrett, thanks. Admiral Lauren, over to you. Oh, thank you, Andrew. I learned something. I thought <laughs> Arctic was Latin for near Sarah Palin's house. Only on the diamonds. Thank you to the Atlantic Council for inviting me here today and for being with such a distinguished group of people to talk to you a little bit about a very important subject. Um, I'm a little nervous, not because I don't enjoy speaking in front of crowds, but I'm, I'm looking at the front row. Ian Brzezinski just went in the back there, but. I had recognized that between Ian and Admiral Loy, General Ralston, 
I have been yelled at by everybody in the front row here <laughs> at, at some point in my career. So it's a, it's a tad intimidating, so please forgive me. Um, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool policy wonk, so we're going to treat this uh, like a policy discussion, and we'll treat it, since given the surroundings, like it's uh, congressional testimony. So I'll start with a little bit of a statement to set the stage for your questions, if I may. So the United States has an unprecedented opportunity as an Arctic nation, as global economic and energy superpower, as chair, as we heard earlier, of the Arctic Council, and as the world's leading producer of oil and natural gas to make strategic decisions that will set the course for the future security of our nation. So my fellow panelists here and I, and the next panel for sure, have dedicated their lives to the national security of our nation. We all understand the importance of making national level policy decisions from the perspective of strategic imperatives. Each of us believes in the process that produces a national security strategy, there's a lot to learn. Each of us understands that national security strategy is not merely a military strategy, it is a military, economic, diplomatic, development, industrial, cyber, and energy strategy, and more. Military leaders and diplomats and national security experts recognize the geostrategic importance of the Arctic and our Arctic energy resources to our national security strategy as a whole. They understand that we possess vast untapped stores of oil and natural gas in the area and that the investments made in developing these resources could extend to investments in ports, personnel, and infrastructure necessary to maintain a strong presence in the Arctic region. Former Secretary of Defense William Cohen, along with 15 flag officers, some here today, uh, authored a letter to the administration asking them to include Alaskan offshore leases for oil and natural gas development in the government's upcoming five-year lease program. Quoting from that letter, they said, Arctic offshore energy development will occur whether or not the U.S. participates. They also said, excluding the Arctic from the program, the five-year lease program, would signal retreat needlessly reducing U.S. flexibility for promoting our national interests and our ability to ensure international cooperation. These leaders recognize the importance of Arctic energy to our national security. They recognize that we must send a signal to the other Arctic nations and the world that we want to maintain our position as a global energy leader, as a nation that must protect our interests in an increasingly strategic region of our world. And as a world leader who must maintain cooperation and diplomacy with countries that also have significant interests in this region. So developing, as we've heard, developing Alaska oil and natural gas resources not only protects our interests in the Arctic, but will also provide us the energy security and flexibility to further reduce our reliance on adversarial nations. These resources will also enable us to increasingly use our oil and natural gas exports as tools for diplomacy to aid our allies who want secure, reliable energy and who are often energy blackmailed by our adversaries. 
This energy development will spur economic growth here at home by generating jobs and revenue, not only in Alaska, but in the entire lower 48 states. Jobs that in many instances are particularly well-suited to those young men and women who have worn the cloth of the nation and are completing their military service. And it will produce the energy that is already lowering costs for consumers and businesses and bringing manufacturing jobs back to the United States. Alaskan oil will continue to fill the Trans-Alaska Pipeline system, providing a critical oil lifeline to our lower 48 states and serving as economic driver for West Coast refineries. And clean-burning Alaskan natural gas will continue to help our climate by further reducing carbon emissions from energy consumption, which are already near 20-year lows. So these, the vast stores of Arctic energy will also strengthen and protect our military, especially acknowledging, as everyone in this audience knows, the Department of Defense is the nation's largest consumer of energy. Our leaders are in a position today that could move us toward a path of greater security by allowing the responsible development of our Arctic energy resources. They could demonstrate that America is serious about our position as a leader of the Arctic nations and as a global economic and energy superpower and as chair of the Arctic Council. Or they could adopt policies that move us away, that slow or halt future Arctic energy development. As Secretary Cohen and our military leaders noted, could possibly signal our retreat from the reason. Bad policies would also take away strategic resources that could be established in the Arctic region and which would be especially detrimental while countries such as Russia and China are increasing their presence and their infrastructure in the region. So that's why today's discussion of developing our U.S. Arctic energy resources is important and timely. Arctic energy is critical to maintaining America's energy and our national security. I look forward to continue, continuing this discussion with my colleagues and all of you. Thank you. Admiral Lauren, thank you. Lieutenant Governor Treadwell, over, over to you. Well, thank you uh, very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's also a pleasure to be on this uh, panel with uh, some, some people uh, I've been camping with in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, Admiral Sweet. Titley uh, was uh, uh, leading the Navy's thought on the Naval Arctic strategy at the time I was chair of the Arctic Research Commission, and one of our goals was to get the Navy back into the Arctic, and thank you for your leadership there. Tom, you were over at the Department of Transportation. I remember one of your aides saying, this Arctic stuff is all going to go away as soon as Tom Barrett goes away. And uh, that, that was uh, not his intent, not my intent, and uh, it's true. Don, uh, Admiral, it's the first time I've had a chance to meet you, but I've seen your work and want to totally associate myself with your remarks. And I'm looking at uh, two uh, senior military statesmen, uh, Joe Ralston and, and Admiral Papp, uh, who have done remarkable things for our country, and I've had the pleasure of working with them also in my career several different times, several different ways. Um, what I wanted to say here is that it was two Navy ships 149 years ago last week that sailed into Sitka Harbor 
One was the uh, Sloop of War Ossipi, and the other was the third class screw steamer, Rasaka. And they were there to participate in the formal transfer of what became known as Alaska uh, from Russia to the United States. And next year, we'll celebrate that 150th anniversary of the transfer of Alaska. And as you all know at the time, the question was, is this a sucked orange? Is this Seward's folly? Is this wall Russia? It was the New York Sun who, referring to the furs, said it's a sucked orange because the Russians had taken most of the fur. Our whalers had already been up there. Actually, they, they pushed open the Arctic frontier because uh, we'd taken so many whales other places in the world that we were moving, moving north. But what America bought with that frontier is we actually bought six frontiers that we're still pursuing and we're still crossing today. And let me take a minute with about each of them because they all relate very closely to the question before us and the specific policy questions, some issues pending right here in this town right now as to where we go with Arctic energy. I'd say the first frontier that we got that we handled quite badly is the indigenous frontier of working with indigenous Americans to empower them uh, uh, because as we go into this 150th celebration, I've heard some <laughs> native leaders say, what? Why do we need to celebrate a European power selling a piece of land they didn't own to a North American power? Uh, we owned it. And a large part of uh, the time that I've spent in Alaska in the last 40 years has been working to empower Alaska Natives, beginning uh, with the Alaska Native Land Claim Settlement Act in 1971. And unlike any other resolution of land claims around the United States, and frankly around the world, uh, what we created is now an economic powerhouse which has dramatically raised the welfare and most importantly the participation in their future by Alaska Natives. And this is not a group to be manipulated, it's not a group to, to, to be ignored, it is a, a powerhouse in our country that has $12 billion in turnover among the native corporations. That's a very active investor, as Tom said, in energy development, natural resources. Is a very active participant in science and, tech and technology. And when you hear Alaska Natives say, we'd like to move forward with the progress we've made on outer continental shelf development, for example, consider that to be sincere and real. And I can introduce you to many people who wear a whaling captain hat on the one hand and somebody who's interested in seeing sustainable Arctic oil development go forward on the other. We have lots to do in that frontier yet, and we can talk about some of that. We also gained a transport uh, and kind of a connections frontier. Most people don't realize this, but uh, one of the things that really put Alaska on William Henry Seward's desk was we had invented the telegraph, or Samuel Morse had, uh, uh, among others, and uh, we were waiting to see if the transatlantic cable would be laid. And the Western Union Telegraph Project was being surveyed across Alaska and across Russia uh, to, to, to go to Paris and to join the continents. And we sent up some of the great scientists of the day, a great uh, uh, biologist named William Henry Dahl, whose name is on several pieces of wildlife there. Uh, we sent uh, Kennecott, uh, uh, also whose name was later on a mine next to a glacier that was found, uh, the Guggenheims developed. Uh, uh, George Kennan the first, uh, was uh, in Siberia, wrote a Mark Twain type book called Tent Life in Siberia. 
But I guess my point is this, is that what they saw then in terms of the connection across the Arctic has become a major connection today. 13,000 people today will cross the Arctic, whether they're flying from Seattle to Dubai or Detroit to Shanghai. And I've done both flights in the last year. And I will tell you that the Arctic is very much an open aviation uh, province, and it is soon to be an open shipping province. 18,000 ships a year use the Suez Canal. Uh, Two or 300 ships crossing the Arctic would probably pay for the icebreaker escort services that we need to keep that Arctic Ocean safe. Uh, and uh, as chair of the uh, Arctic Circle's task force on shipping and ports, we're working on that business plan now. Uh, one other thing that's happening in Arctic transport that I think we should pay very close attention to in the United States is what will be the biggest source of new cash flow for Vladimir Putin which is the new Total project uh, in the Yamal region that will begin shipping 16.5 million tons of LNG most of the time through the Bering Strait to markets in East Asia on ships that are being constructed in Korea now that will be owned by uh, Japanese shipping interests, Greek shipping interests, Russian shipping interests. Uh, but the point of it is there will be normal and regular use of the Arctic Ocean in the tonnage. Uh, and there have been people who have studied the Northern Sea Route. There's an old MI5 project that started at Cam Cambridge University. There have been people who have studying stats on the Northern Sea Route for years. And the tonnage in the Arctic Ocean will go up by leaps and bounds 40 or 50 times as this project comes online. It's incredibly significant to the future of global shipping. And we need to be very much aware of it. There was the exploration science technology frontier that uh, I had the chance to help uh, nurture as chair of the Arctic Research Commission. The United States spends about $400 million a year in Arctic research. I remember pairing our Arctic climate change program and the global climate change program, and they really hadn't done much talking to each other uh, before, and that, that is working together now. There is a tremendous amount of technological advancement that has been made because of the work we're doing in the Arctic. There's a tremendous amount of scientific advancement that has been made because of the work we're doing in the Arctic. And if we retreat from the Arctic in terms of oil and gas development, all that money that BOEM has been spending to make sure we've got good ecosystem baselines, a large part of the money that the National Science Foundation spends to make sure we've got the geophysical baselines may well disappear. And that would be a bloody shame. We have been working very, very hard to advance that frontier in science and technology. And the president's announcement that we're going to go forward with heavy icebreakers, uh, renewing that fleet, building the Sekuliak, a University of Alaska UNOL ship, all have been significant commitments to the Arctic. But frankly, it has been oil and gas development has been one of the major reasons to pay for that science as we've gone along. We have the conservation frontier. And I will tell you, I got out of college Jimmy Carter was president. We got into one of the biggest battles Alaskans had ever had in Washington. Tom Barrett mentioned passing the pipeline by one vote. Uh, we had a long and protracted battle on which areas of Alaska should we set aside from development and which ones should we open up to sustainable development. And ladies and gentlemen, that train left the station in 1980. We have, uh, we have a series of national parks, wildlife refuges, places where we've said we're not going to drill, we're not going to mine, and we've said there are places we will. And yet today, when we get into land use decisions, 
uh, people like to forget that argument and forget those compromises that were made. And that brings me back to the last frontier, uh, which is natural resource development. I mentioned how whaling was big. Obviously, furs were big at the time of the Alaska Purchase. Uh, there was a little mine called the Treadwell Mine. It was a cousin of mine. Uh, uh, okay. I, too distant, frankly, uh, to, to, to <laughs> have got that. But no uh, uh, it, was the, it was the largest gold mine in the world in 1900 <laughs> in Juneau. Uh, we have the largest lead zinc mine in the world, owned by Alaska natives uh, uh, north of uh, Kotzebue. Uh, we have tremendous rare earth potential. But the thing about oil and gas that I just want to say is this. I, my mentor, one of my mentors, was a fellow named uh, Wally Hickel, who was governor of Alaska, secretary of the interior. And six times they had drilled at Prudhoe Bay to see if they could find oil, and nobody had found any economic oil. And he got a group of geologists from Atlantic Richfield Company on an airplane and came up and said, drill here. And they said, Governor, what makes you think there's oil here? And he said, if it's not there, I'll will it there. Now drill. <laughs> and the point of it is they found in a place where they had drilled a bunch of dry holes, they found the largest oil field in North America. And the complex that Tom Barrett helps run now is the largest single private investment in the United States. And it would be a bloody shame and a stupid decision by the United States not to keep that pipeline full and not to use the existing resources that we spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year to maintain and update to produce energy for our nation. And so the opportunities in front of us right now, we have oil and gas offshore and a decision to be made uh, by this administration before it leaves office on what will be the long-term leasing uh, plans. We have a number of exciting discoveries that have been announced onshore where there will be significant discussions about where to put the roads and the pipelines and how to do it right. And we have a treasure trove of natural gas, which uh, ConocoPhillips economist told us wouldn't happen until 2033 or something like that last week at an Alaska chamber meeting. I will tell you, I've been working on natural gas since 1978, and they keep moving the finish line. I feel like it's Lucy in the football. But the point is, is that we've got to work on that as well. And there are very significant resources where the numbers, I was yesterday visiting with a, uh, leaders from Kalis who announced at, that at Smith Bay they may have found another Kaparik. Kaparik at the time it was discovered was the third largest oil field in North America. And they're in for an eight to $10 billion investment hunt uh, tied, tied to this that would be a very significant thing could bring, uh, the discoveries recently announced, Tom, could bring production through your pipeline up to 1.2 million barrels a day. It's very exciting. Offshore, I will say that in the last 12 years, last 16 years, we've made some very difficult decisions as a nation, but we have progressed as a nation. Five coastal states in the Arctic, the United States, Russia, Canada, Iceland and Greenland, are, uh, and Norway, six coastal states. We often leave Iceland out of the coastal states, Admiral, I, I'm trying to fix that. Um, the, uh, but the six coastal states in the Arctic are all doing some form of offshore exploration and development. And the United States should lead there. And the decisions we made in the Chukchi, I mean, we're talking about extending our continental shelf past 200 miles. This is very shallow water going out quite some distance. This is, a, uh, this is a place where the technology that is needed in the Arctic, America has been leading with. And to leave 
the Chukchi Sea off the list, uh, to minimize what's in the Beaufort Sea on the list, uh, for other reasons, in my mind, is not the right thing to do. Other nations will go ahead. Russia clearly will. And the most, I, I, I thought Amy's speech earlier today was, was quite significant, but I will say the most difficult phrase that she used in there was that our leasing decisions will be consistent with our climate decisions. And I'll, I'll just put it this way. I've spent more state money, or advocated for more state money, and more federal money to work on improvements to energy, to cleaning up energy, to mitigation, and to adaptation to change in the Arctic. But I don't think it makes a hair's worth of sense for America to retreat in the Arctic and retreat on what oil will be used. And I will also say there are some very interesting, promising new technologies in carbon sequestration where I'm going to bet that the last laugh is going to be on all, all of us because with all the great things that wind and solar and tidal and geothermal uh, can do, natural gas is an incredible bridge fuel that will probably be our major source of hydrogen in the generation to come. We should not be retreating from the Arctic. We should be engaging in the Arctic and paying very close attention to that resource frontier as well as all of these other frontiers and make sure that we go past the objectives that uh, William Henry Seward left us with all of them. Thank you. Governor Treadwell, thank you. And, and uh, I'd be thinking of questions here in the audience, but uh, I'm going to use my, my moderator's privilege to, to ask a, a, a couple here. And, and you know, as I was listening to, to everybody and, and Governor Treadwell talking about history of, of the region, I, I was reminded, so in uh, a story I, I, I heard a couple of times, uh, so in 1909, Admiral Perry went to the to the North Pole first. First to get to the North Pole, the, the Brits will uh, uh, fight you on that, but but uh, we'll go with that. Uh, and uh, as he got back to civilization, he sent a telegraph to then President Taft, uh, and he said uh, said President Taft, I have the the honor and the privilege of pre uh, presenting the North Pole at your disposal. Uh, to which President Taft replied, thank you for your interesting and generous off offer. I do not know what to do with it. <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think Americans have, have been struggling with that uh, in the century since then, but certainly not uh, any, of, any of the folks on, on this stage and who've, who've done some thinking about it. We know what to do with it. We know uh, how to uh, kind of balance that, that uh, you know, tapping the potential and uh, and and the other things that that we need to worry about. A uh, couple of questions, uh, Admiral Barrett. Uh, first, on on you, you, you talked about um, five hundred thousand uh, versus two million uh, in in terms of capacity. Um, do you think? Do you do you all think that that's a uh, what accounts for that? Is that market forces? Is it Geologic forces is just running out of oil, or is it political problems that are, are slowing that? So what it's what not accounts running for that? out of oil, right? So, or, or gas, right? So, but it's a combination of so access to uh, production up north, whether it's onshore, nearshore, offshore, is incredibly difficult. Permitting is extremely difficult. Coordination among federal agencies is inadequate to the task. I mean, it, so, um, and then recently in the last two years, price has been a major factor. But yeah. I think. Eventually, that will, will sort out. Uh, what I would say about it is um, it, it's never going to be an even path, but 
um, we haven't really talked about how we permit stuff in this country and stuff like that, but I, I saw a clip this morning that uh, I think uh, Britain's celebrating they're gonna add another runway at Heathrow, right? So I don't know if, we, if we, I come through Seattle typically when I come out of Alaska, there's a third runway there. Mm -hmm. Took three years to build that runway. That's a long time to build a runway, but it's an active airport, right? You can understand. It. Took 15 years to permit it. Okay, we see that kind of stuff up north all the time. So access and permitting are two of the major constraints on getting more. Everybody agrees more oil down our line is good. It's good for the economy. Um, it's good for jobs. And not to, you know, our workforce is 20% Alaska Native. Uh, as Mead said, the, the way um, it has worked, up. I had dinner last year, fortunately, with the president. One of the things I, I pitched to him and the science advisor, Dr. Holdren, Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program through University of Alaska. I don't see any other kind of diversity education in this country that turns out that type of talent and those kind of numbers. But um, I'd say access and, uh, uh, and permitting, and most recently, the price, obviously. It's an expensive place to do business. Sure. It's tough. Sure. It, so, it, yeah, uh, interesting. Um, uh, Admiral Lauren uh, and, uh, and, and also for you, uh, Lieutenant Governor Treadwell, I, I, both of you kind of touched on the, this idea, uh, especially that, that other countries uh, are drilling for, for oil up there, oil and natural gas. Uh, and if the idea is if we're not doing it, we miss out uh, we're, and, and we lose our, our leadership on this. Um, can, can you unpack that a little bit more for me? Is there, is there an argument for saying, oh, let the Russians take the, uh, the environmental risk uh, of a, uh, you know, a spill or anything like that, and then we can just buy it from them, uh, just to play devil's advocate. Uh, what, you know, we do need oil, but why do we have to take the risk of, of having a spill or, or something like that up there? Maybe Admiral Lauren first. Well, I, I, I'm one of the, the most firm advocates of energy independence, so the concept of buying oil from the Russians uh, ranks significantly higher than buying oil from the Venezuelans. Uh, but the reality is that, uh, one, I, I, I think that would be a flawed policy to pursue. Uh, two is the, it, there is no country on the planet, in my opinion, that would not attempt and achieve the ability to develop, extract petroleum products in a more environmentally responsible manner than the United States of America. I would never pit our dedication to that cause as well as our technology against, I almost said Soviets, forgive me, against <laughs> the Russians, okay? So no, I, I, I don't see that as a viable policy. We, we need to be there, we need to exercise the fact that we are an Arctic nation, we need to uh, participate globally in the development, the responsible development of the resources. Um, and, and we have to, uh, the same, same factors that have uh, plagued mankind forever uh, are still with us. We have to stake our claim to the region and exercise our leadership. Yeah. If I can add to that, I've had some experience with Russia's environmental policy. It was Deputy Commissioner of Environment after Exxon Valdez in Alaska. And let me just say this, I hate oil spills. Uh, don't want any more of them. Uh, and uh, we passed an act in Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Uh, I've spent a lot of time since then making sure that we lived up to that. Tom, that's something that 
you spend at least $100 million a year on, give or take a few cents. It's a low estimate. Uh, it's a low <laughs> estimate. Yeah. Uh, on, on, on preventing oil spills in Prince William Sound, uh, we've, we have public uh, uh, oversight. We have technology programs. And I think, frankly, we lead the world. The only place where somebody's a little bit ahead of us is Norway actually allows oil spill testing on water and ice, and we end up sending U.S. money over there to, to, to help that happen. Mm -hmm. And that's it's something where we hold ourselves back. Uh, I remember the Comey oil spill in 1994. I was dispatched by our governor to go join the Deputy Secretary of Energy in Moscow to negotiate with the Russians to get them to clean up their spill simply to give the Arctic a good name. And uh, it, was a, it was an amazing piece of diplomacy. I, uh, I got there and I was told that because we had told the truth about things, the whole thing was off. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and my, you know, I, I, I said, well, what's, what, you know, he said, well, actually, it's the only thing we have now to shake things off dead center. And we got a spill cleanup going on there. The, the point that uh, the Admiral made, I think, is very, is very clear. Uh, and let me add one other. Uh, the United States is a big country, and we tend to think we can say, oh, we, we can afford to put this off limits and that off limits and this off limits. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a $20 trillion debt. We have a nation that needs to grow. We have stagnant economic growth. The Arctic is actually leading the United States in economic growth. Uh, we've had a close to a 7% economic growth through thick and thin of oil prices in the Arctic region over the last 15 years. And the fact is that growth has come from investment. And we need to encourage a trillion dollars worth of investment in the next 20 years in the Arctic. That's not a small number. That's going to be for shipping. It's going to be for natural resources. It's going to be for the development. It's going to be, as Senator Sullivan said, and I congratulated him the other day, uh, because I had worked with Senator Stevens and Governor Hickel to try to get the sanitation issues dealt with in the Alaska bush where at the time in the early 90s, only 37% of people had flush toilets and plumbing in their homes. Yeah. And now we're over 70%. And you know, as we're dealing with old infrastructure in places like Flint, Michigan, uh, Senator Sullivan reminded the, his colleagues that uh, in Alaska, we've got lots of places with no infrastructure. And the fact is, is that it's very, very important to the economics, to sustainability, to health in this region that we continue to uh, invest, attract investment, and build jobs. And I believe that's important for us to lead in the Arctic in doing so. Well, with that, I'm going to open it up to questions. Uh, I'll make a, a reminder here to uh, please uh, no comments in the form of questions. And <laughs> instead, let's do it as a question. Uh, and uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation and, and wait for the mic when it comes over. So uh, I think I see one right here first. Thank you very much. Uh, this question is directed for Dr. Sidley, uh, but this is, of course, open for the panel. They Please identify to. yourself. Sorry. Uh, my name is Paul Doman. I'm a member of Empower Strategies, a consultant firm in DC. Okay. Um, Dr. Titley, you have mentioned, I want to ask you about geoengineering. Um, and it's something that seems like that you, I think you said that it was a scary concept to you. Um, but knowing that the United States is part of the US, uh, is part of the Paris Agreement, uh, where we're trying to get uh, carbon emissions below uh, to, to the point where we don't go about two degrees Celsius. I'm curious as to what other strategies you might suggest uh, in achieving that goal while we also continue to develop uh, in the Arctic, as the other panelists have suggested. Okay, so, yeah, the geoengineering, you can 
you know, we, we can talk about that, but uh, for those of you who don't know, geoengineering is the intentional large-scale modification of the climate by man to undo the unintentional large-scale modification of the climate by man, <laughs> to which I usually say, what could possibly go wrong with that? Uh, so that's, that's kind of, and if you want to know more, go to the National Academy of Science website. I was a member of a committee. We put out a two-volume report, and you can read that until you fall asleep. Uh, so, but I, I'm happy to, I, I am happy to talk about that in detail, but it's probably not really the subject of today. Uh, you know, it, it still, frankly, remains to be seen. I mean, everybody signed the agreements in Paris. There was lots of happy faces and, and, and high fives. Uh, but I'm not aware that there is a funded strategy to actually get us there. In fact, when you count up the, what the nations say they're going to do, they're called INDCs, uh, you get to about 3 to 3.2 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels. You're not even at 2, let alone this 1.5 that was talked about. So it really remains to be seen. It really remains to be seen, uh, are we going to, at what rate, are we going to decarbonize our uh, energy source? And, you know, and, and then how do, we, how do we do that? How do we do that both in the U.S.? How do we do it globally? Uh, some things that make my environmental friends very uncomfortable, as I say, so tell me what the role of nuclear power is in that. If you want gigawatt scale, carbon-free, basically carbon-free energy, uh, you know, wind dies and sun sets. So you either have really, really, really big batteries or you start looking at some other major non-carbon uh, parts. To the part which my fellow panelists have been talking about, I mean, I would say that uh, singling out the Arctic or any other one place by any group to say, well, we shouldn't drill there, you know, really brings up the question. It's like, well, would you prefer to drill in West Africa where there's almost no environmental protections? Do we care about those people less? Is that why you want to bring oil from there? Uh, so I think if drilling is done responsibly, we all know there are significant risks in the Arctic. Uh, but I don't think the Arctic should be singled out, nor should it get a free pass, honestly. Uh, there's got to be a national strategy, which we do not have, to, to decarbonize. Uh, but until then, we're just picking and choosing. And, and honestly, it's like watching little kids play, play soccer. <laughs> uh, I think I saw a question in the back here. Yeah, sir. Thanks. Uh, Spencer Walrath with FDI Consulting. Uh, the panel has spoken a bit about the significance of the five-year offshore leasing program. I was hoping that they could also speak to, given the current commodity price and the current lack of activity in the Arctic, why is it important that we include the Arctic in the plan now as opposed to in five years? Yeah, why not wait while prices are low? The, uh, I'll take a yeah. stab at Please. that. Uh, again, I, I fall back on my tendency to be strategic in thought. And if we could rent a ship, go out and drill a hole in the ocean and just have a very long hose right to your gas tank, sign me up, all right? <laughs> uh, but the bottom line is the seismic testing, the exploration, the development, the infrastructure, infrastructure probably takes between five and 15 years before you actually produce a product. Um, so. I don't see any benefit strategically to delaying at least knowing what we have in the form of resources and reserves for five more years. 
Yeah, sure. If I, if I can say that, I, I think we've got to keep it on the plan for a couple of reasons. One is, if you take a look at what we did and the decisions we got to in the Chukchi, including a remarkable press conference by the President of the United States at Camp David when the drilling decision was finally allowed uh, for Shell, is that we've gone through uh, we've gone through getting the baseline science. We need to maintain the baseline science program. We've gone through uh, uh, working on technologies that work, and believe me, the Beaufort and the Chukchi are very different uh, in terms of the kinds of technologies that you need to bring to the table in drilling. Uh, we've gone through the discussions of, of uh, minimizing any impact uh, from uh, waste disposal, uh, from energy on the, on the rigs. We've gone through some of the discussion uh, on, on how oil and gas might be transported, but we're going to watch the Russians do that. And frankly, that's a, what I should say is a permanent discussion the United States needs to be having, is how to improve and how to push back each of these frontiers mm -hmm. as we go along. And the craziness of the, you know, you get once every five years to put something on a list or off a list and, a, and, and so forth, is a start-stop thing that I can tell you as somebody whose job is to try to bring investment into the Arctic sustainably, and I can talk a lot about the sustain sustainability. Uh, one of the first things with sustainability is you need, you need continuity in a government program. So that's why I would put this on the list. I mean, you know, there was, uh, I don't know, when Shell pulled out, for some people it was a big sigh of relief. For me it was a disaster. And I say it was a disaster because we had, we had made, uh, allowed one decision to stick a couple of months before that said you can only drill one hole, not two. Well, that took away 50% of the odds of, of finding that, and we actually wanted to drill more holes than that. And the point is, is you'd, you'd induced somebody, you'd induced somebody to spend six or seven or eight billion dollars in your territory to see if you could find energy, and then you narrowed and narrowed and narrowed the window so that you could only have one one piece of exploration. That's no way to run an energy policy that relies somewhat, as, as Amy Pope said, on all of the above strategy, including oil and gas. And if you're, and, and, you know, and, I, and I'll just say this, if, if your goal in life is to eliminate oil and gas uh, from, from the American economy, stopping it every place you can, to me, does not make a whole lot of sense. Coming up with improvements to technology, uh, ways to make our energy cleaner, uh, uh, ways to make it uh, safer is something I wholeheartedly support. But singling out any one area and saying you can't be there makes no sense. So I'm for keeping, I, I'm not for putting it on the list, I'm for keeping it on the list. Hmm. That's, and that's when the governor of Alaska just recently sent a letter nominating it, that's, that was his intent, is that we've gone through the decisions, we can work through this process, we can come up with uh, changes to permits to make sure that uh, certain issues are, are, are covered. And to go back and have to have this whole discussion de novo uh, makes no sense whatsoever. Could I follow Mead's comment? Two quick aspects, quick I'll one, be brief. Yeah. Um, on the one point, I saw a note again in the paper that for the first time since 2010, the United States again is a net importer of oil. So the, the depend on other people for your oil strategy, which as a nation we did, I don't think that strategy worked out really well. So in this environment, in this world, with its volatility and unpredictability, why would we do anything that would limit our options? Why wouldn't we understand the baseline, know what's there, and then a decision on development is, is sometime later, And like me said. The other thing, and I'm, I'm stuck on this, and I apologize. I do not want to speak specifically. But you know, uh, uh, two years ago when Shell was up there, 
Alaska Inuit offshore, Alaska native corporations set up to invest in offshore exploration, and they understand the risk. They're on both sides of that equation. So now for the first time, you have uh, native groups, indigenous people able to invest in development and that they want to pursue, and we're going to take it away from them. I, I just don't get the logic behind that train when we supposedly consult and listen to these people. There you go. Andrew? Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll just quick just say since the premise of this was oil prices are low, mm. so I've been a weather forecaster for about forty years. So I, <laughs> you know, you can tell me the joke. You get paid one hundred percent of the time for being wrong, wrong fifty percent of the time. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'll take my weather forecast any day against those who forecast oil prices. <laughs> when they're high, we always think they're going to stay high. When yeah. they're low, we always think they're going to stay low. Yeah. So if you start making your decisions because well, it's only going to be thirty, forty, fifty a barrel by the time you get there, you'll be probably back up in triple digits simply because nobody saw that. That's right. Uh, there'll be a bunch more people that get papers printed saying how that happened. Uh, but we will just be what the naval people and uh, maritime people in this room would call steering by your wake. Uh, <laughs> that, that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking out the wrong, we're looking the wrong side of the ship there if you do it that way. Yeah, I, I remember back, so it was back in 2008, I was working on the Hill and, and Shell came in and, and told us about, oh, we just got this great lease that we're going to invest in in uh, drilling in the offshore Arctic and we're ready to go. You know, just, just send us next year, what we can be up there next summer. Uh, and uh, here we are now, eight years later, uh, oil prices have gone down, then up, then down, then up again. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, they're, we're still thinking and talking about it. Uh, next, uh, sir in the back, and then I'll go to you, you after that. So bring that around. Thank you, Lee Bolu, Voice of America. Since there are three admirals sitting there, perhaps I can ask a security questions. I know the next panel probably can address that as well. As you know, sir, uh, gentlemen, that the uh, Russian Navy has uh, recently joined the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea helping uh, Beijing's claim in the South China Sea. So what if, the, what if Beijing returns the, flair, the favor and, and helping the Russian and by holding some kind of joint uh, military uh, naval exercise in the, South, uh, in, in the Arctic Circle? And how would, it, how would uh, that complicate the US uh, security situation? Thanks. Didn't the, uh, the Chinese PLA Navy show up off Alaska when uh, the president was up there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. they, they did. did, they did. <laughs> What uh, any any thoughts about uh, what what more Chinese activity uh, north of the Arctic Circle would would mean? Well, I'll, I'll just please as the as the non-strategy guy here, and then the strategy guys can fix fix what I say, <laughs> what the admiral meant to say. I, my staff was used to that. Uh, what I would, you know, it would be very interesting to see how the Chinese can operate up there. I think they would learn a lot of lessons. I think they'd find it's probably harder than maybe they realize. Maybe not. But I think they would, they would find that. Uh, I think that might uh, be one of those things that could actually focus attention on the Arctic in this town, similar to how the Russians planting a flag on the pole. I, I thank the gentleman who did that. He said, I told him you did more to raise attention about the Arctic in Washington than anything I could possibly ever do. Uh, so something like that could actually really get the United States to think more seriously and more broadly. We think seriously in here, but let's face it, it's a pretty narrow group of people. It's a pretty niche issue. Uh, so uh, 
But if they're working in international waters or if they're working in Russian waters, uh, they're sovereign nations. And, uh, and I'm sure we'd be, be very interested to see how they do. I'll just, I'll stop there. Yeah, uh, additional? Well, one of the dangers in this town, as we all know, is that we think, especially down the street a little ways, um, that we can control everything, we can plan for everything, we can set the conditions for everything. And that, of course, is not the case. I think one of the earliest guys to be thinking about what if I kept going and how would these pesky people on the Indian subcontinent react was Alexander the Great. Uh, you have to take a look at at least understanding the environment you're operating in, setting the conditions that you may be successful, whatever it is you or your allies or your adversaries do. And the reality is we, have, we limit our options to participate and react if we don't even have the presence and the infrastructure to operate in the area. We limit our abilities to react to whatever pairings take place, whatever aggression or cooperation takes place, if we refuse to sit down at the table, if we refuse to exert a presence in the area, if we refuse to participate with others in the area. So I, I'm not going to second guess the what ifs of the permutations and combinations of global alliances. The reality is, let's look at how we can best posture ourselves to be economically strong, militarily powerful, and, and diplomatically present in a more and increasingly more important area of the world. Quick. No, I don't have anything to add, although I, you know, I'm going to keep coming back to the Russian thing. It, it's who do you trust, right? I, I'd be really cautious, certainly trusting at least one of those partners. I, I, the, you know, and the, the other thing, that maybe there is a point made. We operate in the Arctic every day. The industry does, okay? The operating experience and the success of the other national players will, in the end of the day, I think, be driven a lot by the industry operating experience and cutting that off, because that's where the technology is coming from. Uh, I call uh, some of our folks Alaska True Grit. They can do things in 30 below that pretty much you can't believe that anybody can do. They do. So I, I think one of the great advantages the United States potentially has, no matter who else is there, is allowing the industry in to keep pushing the technology, developing it, strengthening it, for all a whole variety of good reasons. If we limit that option again, I think it makes less less capable to deal with a multitude of players uh, ultimately in the Arctic. If very I can quickly. Add, yeah. add very quickly two two things. First, first off, uh, I criticize something Amy Pope said, but I want to underscore something very important she said, which is the United States needs all weather, all season access in the Arctic, and. Uh, uh, getting one icebreaker is not going to do it. Getting six may get us there. But the point is, and as, as Tom has put it well, uh, if you get to be Lieutenant Governor of Alaska, Governor of Alaska, be prepared for people to show up every week asking for money to help build new ports on America's longest coastline. It's, a, it's equal to the rest of the coastline put together. Uh, we were seriously looking at Shell as being the driver to give us the ports to compete in the Arctic with a Russian system, which today is the monopoly for crossing the Arctic with shipping. So there's actually a tie between developing transportation and offshore oil and gas development there that was very, very important to us that we were looking at. As we go through the debate in Congress on getting the icebreaker the President asked for and the other icebreakers we need, uh, I think we need to give the Coast Guard the capability to levy some tariffs. Frankly, uh, American taxpayers don't need to be helping China sell goods to France 
but we do need to be in the transportation business uh, and not letting Russia be the only monopoly there. And that's where we could actually cooperate with China. Uh, that's where we could get to, I, I, Admiral Papp, I hope you talk about your vision of the Starship Enterprise a little bit in this crowd. <laughs> but the point is, is that there is really a good way for, for nations to work together in the Arctic for a peaceful, safe ocean uh, that's going to require ice-breaking assets and cooperation of, of every nation up there. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And I think we've got two minutes left, so let, I can take two very quick questions. <laughs> I have 10 minutes left, I'm, I'm saying, oh, even, even more. So we can take more. Uh, and I want to encourage, actually, uh, since we're an all-male panel, and I've taken all, all men questions so far, I'd like to encourage questions from women. I, I'm a big proponent of this in, in think tanks around town that we need to do more uh, on that front, too. Um, but uh, it's not seeing anybody, I'm going to go to this gentleman here and then keep my eyes open for a, a woman. Noon. My, my name is Richard Ranger. Uh, I'm with the American Petroleum Institute, and I want to key on something, uh, comments both by Admiral Barrett and, and uh, Mr. Treadwell, and that is we hear often we don't know enough about the Arctic to be able to assure sustainable and safe development there. And setting aside that that's a debatable premise, um, I'd like your comments on the idea that you really learn about the environment, about science, about oceanography, when you allow human enterprise. Science doesn't precede de development. It often follows it, that you, you learn things as you go because people are working up there. Is that, is that something you would agree with or disagree with and why? I'm going to give a very quick answer, Richard. Nice to see you, by the way. Um, we had a conference recently uh, where uh, barrow whalers or North Slope based whalers joined up with their ancestral uh, Yankee whalers in uh, Nantucket. And the discussion uh, uh, among scientists and uh, among people with local knowledge was that the federal government science had believed that there was a certain number of whales uh, in the Arctic Ocean. And it was local and traditional knowledge that said, uh, said no, those bowhead that can actually punch a hole through the ice and you're missing. 16,000 of them. And the, ultimately, when we brought traditional knowledge and the experience of being in the Arctic together with the seasonal visitor scientists to the Arctic, we got much, much better science. And I will tell you that when you bring industry practitioners and scientists and technologists together, you get the same thing. And um, frankly, if you take a look at the science, I mean, part of my job was to advocate for the science budget of the United States. Uh, and when uh, there was leasing going on, there was lots of money spent at the Interior Department, a lot of it in conjunction with industry, and when leasing stops, that money goes away. And with it, you lose data sets, you lose long-term capabilities on the technology side, you lose contributions to the international programs on oil and ice, uh, and, and frankly, it will be a big shot in the side of even our climate programs if you quit doing the, the science that goes along with development. If I may comment on that as well, Richard. Um, actually, I won't comment in considering Andrew's point. I will give you the comments my retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel wife would give you in a very diverse <laughs> answer to this. Um, <laughs> once again, it is 
if not the arrogance, the, certainly the fallacy that all good things emanate from this city or from federal government uh, initiation. The reality is that we are a capitalistic society. The way you become familiar with an area, the way you develop the infrastructure of an area, the way you make R&D investments in a technology or an industry line is through capitalism. That, that's how it works in this country. That, that's why uh, we had a gold rush in the 1800s. That's why we sent railroads west uh, to meet. It's all for the entrepreneurship and the, the economic benefit and, and the true American capitalistic spirit. Uh, and so while government certainly does need to seed money in areas that may be slow in developing, and certainly does need to regulate and monitor the operation of business, but the reality is our advancements, our familiarity, developments in science, all stem from the way we conduct ourselves as a capitalistic nation. Barrett, something I, I, I don't have a big point, Richard, thank you, but I'll give you an anecdote which I think illustrates what you're, you're trying to get to. I believe the science would tell us that the longest living mammal on Earth is the Arctic right whale, and they have lifespans that can exceed 200 years. You know how we know that scientifically? An Alaska whaling crew landed a whale, a right whale, Arctic right whale, several years ago in the subsistence hunt they're allowed. And they found in that whale the remains of a harpoon, an explosive harpoon that was in the back of the whale's head that had been manufactured in New England back in the 1870-ish or so as part of the, the whaling um, uh, efforts up there. So the lifespan of that whale was marked by two human activities, the whaling out of New England in the Arctic and the current whaling that we allow Alaska Native people to pursue. Otherwise, we would not have that data point. And About five minutes left. Yeah, I just sure. got one thing. First, I'm, I'm glad we don't date humans that way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not yet, second, anyway. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> second, uh, I, I sometimes tell people that models without data never get you to reality, and data without models never get you to the future. Part of the data comes from being there. You know, it's not just instruments, but they've got to be calibrated. And there's a lot of data which you get by talking to people who have actually done something. Uh, so I think it is a combination. It's not just industry. It's not just government-sponsored science. But the two together can really get you to where you want to be. Either one by itself probably will not. So I can do two questions here uh, to finish off. Sir and ma'am back there. So we'll get your microphone right to there and your microphone right to there. So sir first and then ma'am to, yes, to finish. Uh, Joel Coulter, DVA Consortium. We have till May to lead, and then we transition to Finland. What do you think we need to do as the primary thing with the time we have left to position ourselves to, to lead in the energy sector with the innovation? Thank you, and, and ma'am? Yeah, thank you. My name is Kara Turnger with the Center for Naval Analysis. Um, I was wondering if the panel would speak to the future of for foreign direct investment in the Arctic, particularly going forward um, in the context of non-Arctic states gaining strategic footholds in the Arctic region. Thank so you. like foreign countries investing in American Arctic? Or? Um, yeah, or any, like I know right now China is looking at um, investing in Greenland, for example, particularly okay. in rare earth elements. Sure, sure. Okay. 
so what, what's the primary thing we can do before we hand over the Arctic Council to the, to the Finns in May? And uh, thoughts on getting outside money into the Arctic. So, yeah, at, sure. That's the first question. Um, I'm not going to direct my answer at the specifics in the remaining time. I'm going to direct my answer is, in toto, what should the United States do to lead in the sector? And I think I, I touched upon it in my remarks, okay? We need to have a strategic approach to how we treat the Arctic region. We need to look at it from a national security perspective, a perspective that in fact incorporates economic, developmental, diplomatic, uh, diplomatic, and all the elements associated with national security, so that we can then, from a very strategic approach, put together the policies that we should pursue on a relatively long-term scale. But remember, uh, as von Mulkey said, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. You have to continually revise your plan. Uh, we just need to have and develop a strategic approach to how we will benefit from this tremendously resourceful abundance we've been blessed with, how to do it responsibly, how to do it using all the tools we have as Americans, and, and how to do it responsibly and to the best interest of our nation and our national security. That's what I think we should do, not only for the remaining time as chair, but for our entire watch in looking at the region. Admiral Taylor. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll just address the second question. I think others are better qualified to address the first one here, including Admiral Papp. Uh, the way I sometimes talk about the Arctic, I've done so for quite a few years, is it's changing faster than any place else on, the, on Earth. It's a maritime environment. And then it's not a vacuum. And you probably heard the it's not a vacuum. And then usually somebody says, it, you know, it's not like Vegas. What you know, happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Uh, but what you bring up, foreign direct investment, is a really good example of it not being a vacuum and how actions taken by countries sort of where we all live in the northern hemisphere can reflect and then further impact how changes are going on in the Arctic and, and vice versa, how, how changes in the Arctic, whether it's economic or security or transportation system, will be reflected back, back down, uh, down in the lower latitudes. So, so not to sound too zen-like or anything, but what you bring up is the fact that this really is an interconnected piece. And sometimes I think we like to take the Arctic and we sort of put it over here and it's like this nice isolated cold thing and you gotta remember it's not the penguins, it's the polar bears. <laughs> but, uh, but really, it, it's very connected and will only increasingly, uh, th those connections will only increase. In the, coming, in the coming years and decades. And it's really just another part of our world that we need to pay attention to, like we need to pay attention to other strategically important areas for the United States. Governor Fridmore? If, if I can Final answer thoughts. that, we've got, we've got a couple of decisions coming up. Uh, the, the OCS leasing decision, uh, if, if you don't put the Chukchi and the Beaufort on the list, we're not gonna have the continuing discussion. And I think we need to have that continuing discussion. Uh, we have an icebreaker issue pending in Congress right now, which is one large one versus a group of small ones. Frankly, we need all of them. And we need to commit ourselves and hopefully work with the Finns who've signaled that they want to work on the concept of a seaway so that we have a more 
uh, regularized, reliable system for shipping in the Arctic, and I think that's very important. The science agreement that is pending before the Arctic Council right now, which will be the third binding agreement in the Arctic, out of the Arctic Council, is so important because while I agree, uh, you know, we've heard what has said has been said about law of the sea. The, the amazing thing about Law of the Sea is it will allow any of the people who claim those greater stakes heading toward the North Pole to actually veto science. And so a science agreement that says we've got reciprocity and a, and a way to get there, and I'm setting the bar maybe higher than we we're going to start with, but a process to engage on science has been very, very important. So I'd say those are three decisions. As far as, um, as, as, far as uh, transborder investment, I'll just say this. Fish in the Arctic help feed the world. Energy from the Arctic help fuel the world. Connections across the Arctic and transportation help connect the world. Uh, mines in the Arctic help provision the world. And uh, the tourism opportunities of the Arctic help inspire the world. And I'll just tell you, all those things we do require huge amounts of investment. And they're going to come from global capital markets. And they're going to come from buyers of these assets and resources and services who integrate into the Arctic, and we've seen it with uh, uh, we've seen it with pre-purchases sometimes from China on on that. And I think we have got to be very aware of it. Uh, we have to be aware that capital flows uh, freely and should should flow freely. And uh, you know the effects of the sanctions on Russia, frankly, have been quite dramatic in the Arctic. Uh, the the Chinese investment in uh, Alaska, Canada, Greenland, Iceland uh, is 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 very significant. And I think it's very important that we know them, understand them, understand how they can not uh, affect our interests, but also understand, you know, I just read the life insurance company I've been sending premiums to for years was just bought by the Chinese yesterday. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the point of it is, is that uh, we have to be aware that global capital markets uh, are looking at the North as an emerging market. And uh, we need to encourage free trade and investment because that's what put us, puts us to work. Admiral Barrett, any final thoughts? No, thank you. Well, with that, uh, join me in thanking our panel, and, and thanks to all of you.